Hello, my name is Dr. Kara King. Hi, I'm Dr. Mary Rensel, and we are your host for Inspirations and Insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. In this podcast, we will share conversations with women doctors from all career stages and practices, exploring the highlights and challenges of being a woman in medicine. We hope these thought-provoking stories inspire you and provide insight into the unique challenges and accomplishments of remarkable women docs. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Inspirations and Insights. We are so excited to have Dr. Lisa Urian on our show today. Dr. Urian is a board-certified transplant pathologist and serves as Cleveland Clinic's Chief Improvement Officer, where she directs, coordinates, and evaluates improvement strategies, methods, and implementation across the Cleveland Clinic enterprise. That is no small feat. Since 2010, she and her team have been building a culture of improvement where every caregiver is capable and empowered to make improvements every single day and how Cleveland Clinic delivers high quality, safe, and affordable care for patients. In this conversation, she shares how her rural Ohio roots inform her passion for this work, and she reflects on the steps to successfully changing an organizational culture and how she personally borrowed courage to move her ideas forward. We hope you enjoy. Everyone, we are so excited today to welcome Dr. Lisa Yerian. Welcome, Dr. Yerian. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I am going to take some time and say your new title because it's so exciting. The Chief Improvement Officer. Tell us something about that title. (laughs) Well, for a long time, since 2009, I've been involved in continuous improvement. I was initially in discussion to become the physician liaison, but quickly became clear that there really is no job title of physician liaison, or at least there wasn't at the time. So I became the medical director of continuous improvement and worked there for a long time. But as we sought to elevate continuous improvement in the enterprise, we being Tom, Jim, and I agreed that we should elevate the title of the position as we did that. So we changed the title to Chief Improvement Officer. I actually really like it because it's hard to argue against it. I think it means that I can really work on anything that needs to be better or we want to be better, which gives me uh, a lot of flexibility, a lot of responsibility, but um, a lot of exciting things to do. That is exciting. So what are the latest? What are the latest topics you just just can't wait to get on? Oh, have you heard? Improve. Access. Access. (laughs) Okay. Oh, that's all. Okay. Just everyone listening to the podcast, you're going to get your appointments way easier. That's right. Dr. Urian is on it. Dr. Urian's on it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you feel much better now. (laughs) Right. I do. Thank you. I'll schedule all my kids' appointments. Okay, well, Dr. Yurian, how does a pathologist find herself as the chief improvement officer? Give Uh, us a little... I would say a little bit of exposure to uh, process improvement methodology. So I came here to be, you know, an academic surgical pathologist. I'd done a fellowship in gastrointestinal liver pathology, and I wanted to be an expert in that and thought it would grow up to become John Goldblum, my department chair at the time, and still my department chair for my clinical work. After I was here not long, a couple of years, I started to get pulled into meetings and projects that the lab team was working on to really solve problems in the laboratory. We would have lost specimens or specimens that have been mishandled, and they would want you know a pathologist or a physician to be on the team. And I uh, candidly think I was one of the more friendly and outgoing pathologists. I was young. I was eager. I was a good person to, to bring into these meetings. And you know I was very excited and enthused and optimistic 
that has remained. But we would have these meetings and leave, decide we were going to do a bunch of things, walk out of the room, and then another month or two, we'd be back in the room having the same conversation about yet another mishandled specimen or last specimen or problem or whatever it was that we were having. And around the time I started to see examples where other labs were using process improvement methodologies to improve process, improve quality, safety, improve flow. And I was sort of fascinated, mesmerized. It was actually a method that I could see being effective in helping people accomplish what they wanted to do. So I thought, oh, that's it. That's the secret that can help us. So I started to get involved. I came here in 2004. In 2006, the Cleveland Clinic started a process improvement type team. I started to get exposed to it not long after that and found out that that team at some point got moved under Mark Harrison, who was the Mm -hmm. chief of medical operations at the time. I heard that Mark had told the team that in order to be seen as credible at the Cleveland Clinic, they needed to be working with a physician. They needed a physician champion. And naturally, I decided that should be me. So I set up time with the person who was leading the team, the executive director at the time, had, in retrospect, was a series of conversations where I just kept going back and going back and going back. It was a lot like Fight Club, you know, where Robert Paulson has to keep coming to the porch and saying, I want to be a part of Fight Club. I kept saying that. And eventually... He agreed, and we put together a proposal to take to Mark Harrison and to Candace Marchant, who was my institute chair at the time, for me to become that physician champion. And so that was in 2009 that I became affiliated with the team and started to learn and do continuous improvement everywhere, everywhere I could. I love it. So a lot of times we have learners listening to this podcast. So I think there's some gems to pull out of there. I think some keywords were optimistic, right? And friendly and just being present, right? And then I I hear a lot of persistence, (laughs) folks. So, you know, persistence with a smile, maybe, or with with a plan. So you went with a plan and you kept representing and presenting your plan. Yeah. So if you, you know, yeah, well, how about that? Let's speak to the young learner that sees some opportunity somewhere and it feels like they're hitting a wall, how do they keep presenting their ideas or, you know, give a twist to their presentation so that maybe it would land a little bit uh, more positive with, with the senior leaders listening? So I think, you know, in retrospect, I'm kind of surprised myself as I tell the story um, that I was courageous enough to do that. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I think it's hard to even get the courage to ask for the opening, right? Ask for the time, ask for the meeting, ask for the sit down with somebody. So I think it's this it's this balance of being persistent, but also being polite and thoughtful so that the person doesn't feel like you are overwhelming them or attacking them. You're not setting them on their heels. I think another piece is as you have those conversations is to really listen. So as we were having these conversations, listen for what he was looking for and use that so that I could adjust my plan, my response, my questions. And I just remember the sense of always trying to figure out an answer, like what's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? I think it's easy to become concerned about you know, the end game. Well, you don't necessarily know what the end game is or when you're going to get there, and you don't have to get there today or in a single conversation, right? I see it. I don't see a no as 
I never see a no as never. I see a no as not yet. And okay, then what's the next, you know, the next problem we need to solve, the next piece we need to bring forward in order to get us to that next step. I love it. Yeah, that's the growth mindset, right? It's just not yet, not yet. And then, yeah, just listening, that active listening and and just finding really maybe what's important to that person so that you can reflect that back to them, that it's important to you as well, just to move this project forward. Well, you know, Cleveland Clinic has what, like 66,000 caregivers? I don't even know, maybe more now. I mean, how do you, how do you, find the enthusiasm or the people that are willing to put some time and energy into improving different areas of the Cleveland Clinic? I mean, how do you find those opportunities yourself leading from from up high? Yeah, so I would say when we started, it was a lot of just personal relationships. So going out, meeting with people, asking people for time to talk and learn about what it actually is. When we started to, we'd been working on projects and We were having some good project success in 2012, but we had this realization that we weren't really changing the culture. We hadn't fundamentally changed the way we embrace problems or the way we solve problems, the way we come together. And if you look at organizations who have done this well, it's part of how everybody thinks every single day. And we wanted to shift to that. As we started to try to shift to that, we spent a lot of time figuring out what is that, right? How do we define that? Are we getting closer to it? Are we getting further away? What's working for us? What's working against us? And I used actually what's a very common continuous improvement tool called an A3 to really work through that. It was my first A3 ever. We weren't using it commonly at the Cleveland Clinic at the time, but I had a friend in the industry who, when he heard that we were going to try to do this, said, Lisa, it sounds like you need to do an A3 on this. So mm-hmm. I'd say l- listening and taking advice that is you know, well-placed. That advice, and I, I don't care if you use an A3 or not, but that advice to spend time really thinking critically about what it is that you're trying to accomplish, what's, work, what's helping you, what's working against you, how will you know if you've done it or not, and what are those key steps you can take. Again, to get closer to it was really critically important and valuable advice to us. So we did that initial thinking, but then decided we needed some places to to experiment, to learn, to start the work. In order to get those, I set up a series of conversations with executives. So I just went around any for the executive suite and I went to the chief of HR and I talked to him about what we were trying to do and asked him to support us, partner with us, come see it. I went to Kelly Hancock, told her what we were trying to do, asked her. And I was also very clear and specific in my ask. A lot of times I hear folks asking for support. The problem with support is anybody can say yes and they can do absolutely nothing because we have no idea what support means. So they're not clear what you asked them for and you're not clear what they agreed to. So we tried to be very concrete, you know, always figure out what are you gonna get? What's that next step? So what's that next step? Can I get 30 minutes of your time to talk about this? Really hard for somebody to say no to 30 minutes of your time to talk about something. And then once you do that, can, can I get you to come visit? I want you to see, you know, I want you to see what it's like. The other trick is to ask people for feedback. Everybody likes to be asked for their opinion. So you could say, you know, I could say right now, Mary, I've been working on something. I'm excited about it, but I would really love to know what you think. You're much more enthusiastic about coming out to spend time with me than if I just told you how wonderful what I'm working on is. 
So you have to think about what do people want as you're asking for things, as you're asking for support. So early on, it was just a leader, a leader, a leader. And then as leaders started to see it, Kelly is a great example. She came down to see it and said, um, Lisa, will you help me do this in nursing? And I said, I, I would love to. <laughs> and, then, right. and then we were off. I love it. Are there certain industries that are way ahead of medicine or have done this more systematically that you, you went to as well that are leaders in this? Like you hear about the Pixar team or the J&Js out there. Like, are there any that are just like, ooh, they're just, we just could take so much from them yeah. for the cultural lessons? So a lot of the tools we use started in Toyota you know, in the, in the auto manufacturing industry, but not across all companies. They came from Toyota. And it's really interesting, you know, a lot of the things that we would do now or might do now because we feel that they are, you know, polite or caring things to do. You know, Toyota did it from a very practical point of view. They weren't trying to be nice. They were trying to create a higher quality car at a lower cost. And in some ways you could say healthcare's kind of the same way. I think we are also trying to be nice, but we also are trying to deliver safer, higher quality care at a lower cost. But I would also say that it was a long time and very, very hard for other companies in the auto manufacturing industry to pick up and use similar tools and concepts. Probably as an industry, the one that I would say has been most successful, probably because they needed to, is the aviation industry. That's the one where I think you've got perhaps higher stakes, maybe, probably not higher stakes in healthcare, but higher stakes than some industries, they've had more success with implementing it, you know, broadly. And, and there it really takes the form of high reliability. How do we have incredibly safe, reliable processes? I just want to say how pumped up I am. This, <laughs> like, I feel like, like you've just put me this, into this headspace that we can fix anything. Like you said, your job seems so fun and that like, your mindset is how can we make this better? That's fantastic. You want to come be on my team? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> see, you want to come King. see a gunfight? I'm, I'm yes. on Larry with me. Let's go Please. see it. <laughs> I'm very optimistic. I am. I can do this. Yeah, I can do this with you. It's exciting. So here's 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 what I'm. My brain's going in so many different places. But when I hear you talk about when they're looking for a physician liaison, and you're like, well, that phys- physician obviously needs to be me. And then I walked around the C-suite and started knocking on doors. Like you are my hero. Like <laughs> you are my hero. Can you talk to me about like where did this confidence come from? Where did you get this from? I'm laughing, Kara. That's a great question because I don't normally have that confidence. I'll tell you two places where I think it came from. Uh, one of them is my passion and enthusiasm for the topic. Like I'm laughing because as you say, reflect these things to me, like I never would do these things. I was terrified. You know, I came here and thought like, I hope I'm good enough to survive here, you know, like to keep a job, let alone like I wasn't aspiring to lead. I was just aspiring to, you know, contribute. Yeah. And so I think really it was the the enthusiasm and the passion and the real, I would say, um, sincere belief in what we were trying to do. I really believed in what we had set out to do. I really believed that there is power in engaging every caregiver in improvements every day. And I'm passionate about improving health care. I grew up in uh, rural southeastern Ohio. I am a first-generation college graduate. I have seen and experienced the impact of poor access and poor quality and poor safety. And I could tell you lots of terrifying stories about 
loved ones and the quality of health care that still occurs today. You know, every time I see, your t- see my parents, they're telling me about some other friend or loved one who had some terrible diagnosis, terrible outcome, terrible experience. To me, it's critically important that healthcare improves. So I think my passion carried me through a lot of the hesitation and fear. I normally don't do stuff like that, but when you believe in something, it's okay. The other thing I strongly believe in is borrowing courage. So one way that I borrow courage is working through my colleagues. And I'm laughing at also at you saying how excited you feel. I've had so many experiences where I could not have done something on my own because I was too scared, hesitant, uncertain, didn't know if I could do it or not. But when I was paired with one of my colleagues, that got me over the hump. Um, one example is when we started Solve. So Solve is our multidisciplinary collaborative problem-solving program. I had a glimpse of wanting to do something like that, but not quite formed in my head, and it was just sort of too much for me to bite off. But I met Nirav Vakaria, and Nirav was already doing something like this, albeit in a very narrow area. He was doing it within G10. He was a primary care doctor who worked here for several years. He's fantastic. And so with him, when we met, he told me about what he was trying to do. I told him about what I was trying to do. And I was like, Nirav, we need to do this for the enterprise. And he was like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah. So like paired with Nirav, I had the courage to do it. And I was like, this is how we have to do it. And I had this whole strategy around, okay, like you're going to prep your boss because he was under Mike Henderson and quality. I'm going to prep my boss. I was under Bob Wiley. And then we're, we're going to bring them together because neither is one going to want to say no in front of the other one. And we're going to call it a pilot. So that it's so like here I am suddenly being like brave and strategic in a way that I never even thought about because the passion carried me beyond those, you know, barriers or boundaries or insecurities I would have put up for myself. So this is funny too. Uh, so so we did this. So of course Bob Wiley and Mike Henderson said yes because I'm sure it was a wonderful proposal for a pilot, so it's low investment. We said, we'll see if we can deliver results. Well, then we needed somebody to actually participate in the program. So we called up a bunch of our friends. So we called up, I still remember we were in over in uh, NA2. We scheduled like a five o'clock meeting because we were all in clinical service. And it was me and Nirav, Steve Shook was there, I think... Um, uh, Alberto Montero was there, Lo Carana was there, a bunch of these like sort of physician friends of ours. And we got them together and we told them what we wanted to do. And I paused because I was nervous. So, you know, I paused hesitantly. And I so clearly remember, like, we stopped talking and they were like ready to react. And one of them just said, well, then we have to do this. Just like, of course. <laughs> I was like, were you like... What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like my idea? What? <laughs> okay, of course we do. Of course we have to do this. Of course. There's no other option here. So we did it. So we, the first one was a pilot. And so Steve wow. Shook was one of the team leads. And Alberto was one of the team leads. And, and so we started this pilot with eight, I think we had eight teams, the first cohort. And we did the report out. And like Nirav and I, the whole time, we're like, oh my gosh, this is actually working. You know, like we were actually seeing teams deliver. Like, I can't believe this is actually working. And then we were ecstatic and excited and we continued We continued to grow the program. So that's one way. The other way I borrowed courage is really from Kelly. You know, there are times when, you know, I'm, I was still pretty shy. I still am a little bit around the CEO, you know, the title, the office, the person. Yeah. 
And uh, when Toby was here, Kelly was really supportive of getting time, me getting time with Toby to share with him what we were doing, what we were working on, why it was important. And I remember one day we were in her office and she was, you know, guiding me, mentoring me, advising me. And she said, just go over to his desk. You know, there's desks right outside his office. Just go over there and tell them you need time with Toby. They do it for me all the time. And she must have seen the look on my face because she said, (laughs) and they'll do it for you too. But like sometimes you need your your buddies, your friends to like give you that little nudge to do something that, you know. Oh, my gosh. I love this story so much. And your excitement is palpable. And like what I'm feeling is that you've built this tribe of amazing people around you and this really psychologically safe space where you can like speak raw ideas and not fear judgment and then like partner with people who think in just a slightly different way that just like catapult you right? Yeah, that's it. Easy as that. (laughs) Okay. So I also want to dive into this, the passion that you have. I mean, you obviously had this full body yes, right? Like this doesn't feel like work. I mean, I know days feel like work, but I can tell that you just truly enjoy what you're doing. Did you know that this was your full body yes for a while or did it come by surprise when you felt this this type of passion in, 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 your, in your gut? It came by surprise. So I tell you, I had a bit of a career crisis. So I had grew up in this environment where I wanted to do something. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to, I wanted to have an impact. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know how. I had, uh, you know, I knew, you know, when I looked at career choices, it was like teacher, nurse, doctor, like, I didn't even know so many <laughs> careers existed, because I didn't know people or, you know, we just, I just wasn't exposed to it. Ultimately, I decided I wanted to go to medical school, because it seemed like a good way to make a difference, right? I had volunteered at the free clinic here on Euclid Avenue, got some great experience, wanted to do healthcare for the poor. Got into medical school, which is great. And as I started to do my third year, hit a total wall. Hmm. Uh, I loved college. I loved working at the free clinic. I loved the first two years of medical school. I got onto the wards and I was terrified. And I was like, I was like, so, so, so. I probably needed to see, I, I'm sure I was d- clinically depressed. I lost weight. I was just every single patient. I saw and I was on the oncology service and I would walk out and every patient reminded me of somebody I knew and loved. Mm. And I was like picking myself up off the floor. I was miserable. And I had, again, a a colleague, a friend, uh, my roommate who, and she was like, you can't quit. (laughs) You have to finish medical school. I kept, you know, I could, I could keep going, but I would say it was pretty much just barely. Um, And uh, started to do... I did medicine first, started doing another rotation, ended up going up into the surgical pathology lab and met a woman I had done research with. And she said, how's it going? And I think she could see that like, you know, chin quiver, tear in my eye, throat tightening reaction. And she said, try pathology. It's different. You might like it. Wow. And so I kept that in the back of my mind. But the whole time I was getting all this feedback that, you know, it would be a, a disservice to patients if I went into pathology because I'm such a people person, hmm. that kind of thing, which is a lot of pressure. Plus, there's this, you know, girl who grew up in North southeastern Ohio who planned to be a doctor and doesn't even know what that really means to be a pathologist. And now here I am and I'm terrified and I can't be a doctor. 
is what I was thinking, right. which was a tough, a tough situation for me kind of emotionally to face. I ended up doing a rotation in surgical pathology at the beginning of my fourth year and was like, oh my God, I found my home. These are my people. Like I could look at a slide and see it and knew it and remember it. And it was so much fun. And I was solving problems left and right. It was like a crossword puzzle, you know, every day, every case was like that little rush of, you know, solving. Yeah. And then I did my intern, sub-internship in medicine and it started out and I was like, this isn't so bad. I could do this. Maybe I could do this for like a year, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the month, I was like, I, I can't, I can't do this. So it was really, I think, hard for me to make that kind of realization that I could still be a doctor and still help patients and still drive value and be a surgical pathologist. And to be honest, I love being a surgical pathologist. I love working with, you know, my surgical colleagues, the hepatologists, the gastroenterologists. It's a lot of fun. But I think continuous improvement kind of brought me back to that opportunity to have this bigger impact or engage people in a different sort of way than I was able to as a surgical pathologist or that I was able to as a, you know, a person who was on the wards taking care of very sick people. I feel incredibly grateful that I have these like 5,000 amazing colleagues who can see patients and take excellent care of them, including myself and my family and my loved ones, without having to pick themselves up off the floor every single time they see another patient. I don't know how you all do it. I'm thrilled and appreciative. I'm just hopeful that I can like bring something to the table if your patient needs a liver biopsy. But I think with when I found CI, it kind of helped me complete that feeling of how how much I wanted to make a difference for people. And it gave me kind of a path and a venue to do that. And you're right, I'd say it doesn't really feel like work most of the time. Sometimes it does, like anything else, it does. Wow, thank you so much for your transparency and vulnerability that you just shared that story. It's really difficult to talk about, and I think a lot of people go through that and feel that, but don't feel like they can bring it up. So thank you so much for opening that space. I think it's really important for learners and faculty out to to hear your journey. It's, It's really powerful. Thanks. And I'm also hearing that, I think you said it was a physician who looked at you and was like, like, how are you doing? It was. A physician. And she was a pathologist, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the fact that she like stopped, at least the way I'm hearing it, is like stopped and saw you, right? Was like present and saw you and like felt, felt what you were feeling. It really shows the impact that we have as staff on our learners around us too, yeah, you're right. It was probably like a 30-second, 60-second interaction. Did you ever go back and speak with her? I'm just curious if you ever went back and was and just like mentioned the story again. Yes. So she actually, you know, was at the University of Chicago, and then I stayed there for residency. So she was an attending staff member, and we did have follow-up conversations. Um, she was, you know, incredibly supportive, a great mentor for me. One of the things that she shared was that she saw it (laughs) as a gift that I had this experience during my training and could right away figure out, okay, I need to do this as a rotation. I need to figure this out. And then I needed to, I needed to do my residency and fellowship in that. She had actually started residency and at some point 
in the first year had a similar experience of what's wrong with me. Like, you know, you end up in the situation where you've succeeded, you succeeded, you succeeded. And then all of a sudden you're like, what's wrong with me? Because now all these other people are succeeding, but I'm not like I'm not. And I think that was her experience. And then she took time off, stepped away from medicine for some time and then came back and did her pathology residency. So she really framed it for me as a gift to have the experience at the time that I did so that I could, you know, pretty quickly make the adjustment. She also prepared me for some things that she thought I was going to experience along the way. So she, you know, told me that everybody hates their internship in the first month. Um, And so I was kind of braced, bracing myself or braced myself for that. And I have to say that, you know, within the first two weeks, I was like, I love this. Like, I never had that experience, but I feel like she was kind of looking out for me to tell me and prepare me for this. Like, it's okay. It happens to everybody. You know, I thought that was, again, another really fantastic thing that she did for me. I love that. And I do just want to make a note that I was a grossing tech all during undergrad and medical school. And I grew up in the lab. I love you people. I almost went into pathology because you guys are the kindest humans ever. We are. You guys are different. I'm not going to lie. We're amazing. You're right. You are amazing. I just, I I really enjoyed my time and I'm a surgeon now. And so I still work really closely with my pathologist. I still go down, bring my specimens down for my frozens. I want to like be part of it. I look at that like double microscope thing, you know, all the things. And I I just really am thankful for your work. So yeah, really powerful story. Thanks. Yeah. Mary, back to you. All right. Wow. I want to go back to Southeast Ohio. You know, I just, what do you know, when you go back, what is it like? Are you like, da, 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 is there a parade when you come back into town? No, or but like, maybe there should be. No. There, there should be more parades, people. Let's get it. Let's get it together. We need more parades. But, you know, I just want to like, think about yourself as a, you know, fifth grader or a sixth grader. Did you ever think you'd be up here in Cleveland, you know, changing 66,000 people's, you know, continuous improvement and enhancing, enhancing, uh, you know, the care of so many millions of people around the world. Yeah, never, never, never dreamt of it. I actually had come to the Cleveland Clinic, I had an aunt who had cervical cancer, and she uh, had some treatment here. And so I was like, you know, 10 or 11, riding the backseat of my mom's car, she drove her sister up here for treatments. And I just, I very clearly remember like driving into the old circle complex area and going to the cafeteria and getting, you know, food in the cafeteria. And I was like, you know, starry eyes, starry eyed, mesmerized. It's, you know, you go home, you, you can't really go home. It's not the same. You know, I go home, I visit my parents. I think that there is a sort of mixture of a pull towards that, you know, like, have I done enough to support and help? And, you know, it's my parents, you know, my parents still live there. They have a lot of friends and family members there. They've been in that community their whole lives. They come up here for most of their health care. Fortunately, they have a, a primary care provider close to home who does take very good care of them, but they're up here you know, for all of their stuff. My dad had rectal cancer several years ago. He was up here. Scott Strong operated on him. Um, They've both, many, many of us, many of my colleagues have been their doctors, and I'm deeply appreciative for that. But the the problem of healthcare access there, good healthcare, quality healthcare, is still very real. And in some ways, I feel like what I do or have done still feels far away from them and for them. So there's, you know, people know, you know, 
their daughter is a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. They don't really know what it means or what I do beyond that. They don't really understand my specialty, right? Because it's not something that they would have interfaced with or interacted with. So, you know, in some ways, yeah, it's nice. My parents are, of course, very proud of me, but it's also very humbling. Um, I think my parents would be very proud of me, honestly, no matter what I had done, including if I hadn't gone to college. (laughs) So I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference there. That's lovely. What message do you want to give the little fifth and sixth grade girls that are in your hometown? What do you think they need to take? What steps? You can do it. Like figure out what, and I think the most important thing is figure out what you want. What do you want to do? That is actually, I think, one of the hardest things. Don't do Mm -hmm. what, you know, other people, like people try to tell you all kinds of things. Like listen and filter at the same time. I actually told, I have a I I shared a story once about um, my sister. I have an older sister. She had applied to medical school a couple of times. She went to Case Western, great student, but she didn't get into medical school a couple of times. And so I remember very clearly being home from college and being at like the local, the Fireman's Festival in Caldwell, Ohio, Noble County. And we ran into some community leader that my high school girlfriend knew. And he was talking to us about what we were going to do. And I said, oh, I'm applying to medical school. And he said, well, if your sister didn't get in, what makes you think you're going to? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that has anything to do with me, but I mean, I didn't say anything. I was like, oh, that's not what I expected. But I told right. that story, but I told that story some one time. Oh, in 2016, I think we had this leader summit downtown where we had these leader behaviors and I was asked to speak to one and Margaret McKenzie spoke to one, Kelly Hancock spoke to one and Adrian spoke to one. But as I was developing it, I was working with somebody who worked in HR at the time and I she was like sort of exploring for stories and I told her that story and she was like, "You have to tell that story." And I was like, "No." And she was like, no, no, you do, you do. I can't believe that he told you that and you still did it. And I was like, that is not my story. And she was like really annoyed that I that, that wasn't my story. And I was like, yeah, that's not my story. Like, that's, that's not, not what story. I'm about. That's just something that happened to me. I shared it. I don't know. You sparked a memory. Like, pick your story. Pick, you know, hear what people say, but filter it nice. and figure out which pieces of it are going to be your story. And then I would say you can do it. Like, if you have a method, you have a strategy, you can do it you know, take care of yourself and do it. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, Carrie, you can close it out, huh? I just want to thank you again, Lisa. This has been truly an enlightening 30 minutes. You have such a sense of authenticity and confidence, yet you are humble and vulnerable. Like you are all the things that I really yearn to be. Thank you so much for this conversation, truly. And I know people from all levels, including medical students, residents, fellows, faculty, Everyone is going to get so much out of this. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you for listening today. Join us again as we draw inspirations and insights from women doctors past, present, and future. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WPSA1. That's at WPSA and the number one. This podcast is supported by Cleveland Clinic's Women's Professional Staff Association as part of the Cleveland Clinic Centennial Celebration.